0: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
0: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday from 10 to 11 Eastern, live and archived uh, in the evening so that you can listen to us online anytime. And also listen to my new show, which isn't so new, but it's on Thursdays on WCDB FM, Albany, New York, Uh, The Social Workers. And we're on from 9 to 10 every Thursday, live and also archived. Joining me this morning is Dr. Barbara Greenberg. Uh, She is the teen doctor for Psychology Today. She has established the website called TalkingTeenage.com and is the author of Teenage as a Second Language. She's a Ph.D. and has a private practice in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Uh, today we're going to talk about her book a little bit, uh, but we're, we're really going to be discussing, and because she is the expert, she's the teenage expert, we're going to be talking about the recent allegations of sexual abuse with young boys at Penn State. So welcome to the show, Dr. Greenberg. Nice to have you, you on. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Good. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. It's great. Can I call you Barbara? Uh, absolutely. Please do.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's,
2: you know, you do have a
0: website, and we want to uh, mention the website, website talkingteenage.com. TalkingTeenage.com, so you can go and find out what the teen doctor is doing uh, for psychology today, amongst other things. Um, And Barbara's new book, Teenage is a Second Language, A Parent's Guide to Becoming Bilingual. Uh, That's her new book. But Barbara, I think we've established you as the expert, obviously.
2: Thank you. Uh, (laughs) So
0: let's Let's get into this, this. I mean, this whole. Uh, you know, I'm a social worker, so we've been talking about that obviously at the university and uh, mm-hmm. in in uh, practice and private practice with a lot of social workers. These sexual uh, sexual abuse with young boys. Uh, it's uh, really a horrific situation that went on really for so long. Really horrific. I think yeah. that's the
2: perfect. Word, it, it that doesn't even begin to capture it.
0: Let, can you Do we have statistics? I mean, I, I you know I knew I was going to interview you today, obviously, mm-hmm. so I did come up with some statistics about sexual abuse. How prevalent is it? And I suppose we can focus specifically with boys, with young well, boys.
2: you know, the statistics really vary depending on which studies you're looking at and, and the data from different years. But I think it's fair to say that it's much more prevalent than it, than it should be. And we do know that girls are more sexually abused than boys, but we do know that there's a whole subgroup of sexual abusers who whose interest is primarily young boys. And, of course, we know that they tend to be men. It's very statistically unusual for women to sexually abuse boys. It does happen, but the reason it makes the news so frequently is because it, it, it's a it's atypical. It's it's not they're they're not the ones that are most likely to abuse boys.
0: Barbara, can we give a definition of child sexual abuse? What is it? How do we define it? Is I mean, is it penetration? Is it what is it? Masturbation? It, I mean, I think there's we need to define that for absolutely. our audience. Absolutely, it's
2: it's on a continuum. I think sexual abuse can range from anything like um, sexting to touching, kissing. Um, any any kind of touching of the of the body and intercourse it really runs on a continuum and it would be, really be a mistake just to simply think of it as sexual intercourse. Okay, so it,
0: it, it as you say it's on a continuum. Yeah, um, yeah. I think because I think it's important to define exactly what it is, uh, and I think another piece of this is that it happens everywhere to everyone. Uh, it, it, it used to. I mean, I know when I was even studying social work, it was you know this only happens in poor communities, uh, not true. This runs the gamut.
2: Absolutely not true. It happens across all socioeconomic groups. And, in fact, the very sad thing is that the people that are most likely to abuse your sons are the people that are minding them, that are caring for them, that you have entrusted your kids to. And it's unusual for it to be a stranger who's molesting your teenage son, which is very, very scary. If you really want to see, figure out who is molesting the boys, it's either somebody in the home, a relative, somebody who has a lot of access to your child. I really hate saying this, but it's the truth a coach, a teacher, a Boy Scout leader, its somebody who has a lot of access to your child, access and availability, because what sexual abusers do, and you know this as a social worker, of course, but I think it's important that parents understand this, is they go through a process where they groom your children. And what that means is that they go through a process where they build up a very affectionate and what seems to be a very loving and caring relationship with your child, once that trust is, once they get the child to really like them and depend on them, that's when they sort of move in, so to speak, and start playing what they call games with the child. They usually introduce it as a game, a sexual game.
0: And, and I want to, you know, I have a perfect example of what you're please. talking about. Uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, the, obviously the teacher, the babysitter, the priest, the the babysitter. all people that they put themselves in positions because they are predators. Well, not necessarily, put themselves in positions
2: because right. they have contact the children.
0: Yeah. And there was a, uh, a young woman on the show, on, on on my show, who wrote a book, and I don't know if... Uh, Lauren, book, uh, Lauren Book is her name. She was... Uh, grew up in a very upper-middle-class family, father a lawyer, but mother who was bipolar. And her nanny abused her for seven years. So this kind of describes exactly what you're talking about. The nanny came in and did exactly what you describe. Uh, and she was... the. there were three children in the family. She happened to be the one who was the one who was the the, pla- uh, the crowd pleaser, the one that... Was the she nan- the
2: oldest child? She,
0: yes, she was the yeah, oldest. Yeah, it's often
2: the oldest child.
0: Yes. She was the oldest.
2: Yeah, it's often the oldest child, and then what, what happens is when the oldest child gets too old or moves out of the house, then it could be the next in line. So you met, sadly, yeah, well, kids are not spared. So
0: I think that's a really... Uh, you know, I kind of want to reiterate that point because, like you said, I think parents have to be aware as well as children because you know when you see people, when you watch these television shows, the predator is always some nasty, ugly person that boy, you'd recognize him or her,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: you know you're not going to recognize it as your loving babysitter or your teacher or your uh or your new husband person. Or boyfriend, yeah, so I think it's very difficult, I mean, in terms of being able to recognize, um, is it? I mean, in terms of, in your experience, in your practice, to recognize who the predators are in your midst, in your
2: environment. Right. That's why we can't stress enough to parents that you need to be mindful of who is caring for your children. Now, I think that the current model that we have about educating Kids about sex abuse. It, I think we're really failing our kids with that model. And Catherine, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. We teach we're We're told to teach our kids about good touches versus bad touches, right? Yes. And then we're also taught to teach them if anything, anybody touches you inappropriately—a very vague term—come tell me. So that's what I was told. That's what you know i told my kids that's generally what parents are told to tell their kids i think there's a problem with that it's obviously not working because kids continue to get sexually abused over the years i think that is too burdensome for the kids you see if a, if a child is being told by one parent Come to me if something is amiss, and being told by somebody else, maybe another parent, maybe an uncle or somebody else that they trust. No, 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 this is okay, but don't tell your mom; she wouldn't understand. Or I will kill your mom, or if you tell her, that that child is put in a very difficult position. So I really don't think the burden should be on the child. I think we should tell them about appropriate touches and inappropriate touches, but we shouldn't assume that since we told them that, we're in the clear now and they will come to us. I think that i
0: want to address the first thing that you said because I think one of the things is it's all too vague. And unfortunately, I have three boys who are now in their early 30s and one is in his late 20s. And they had the kind of... Uh, teaching or that was the health program at their school and this is a a very a you know suburban school that they went to right. um, and you had to give permission for them to get to, you know to go to the class cetera and they came home and told me what was they were taught and it was you know don't touch you know under the bathing suit and all this vague kind of stuff well they had fortunately I mean, I'm very open with them. We used to laugh about it. I mean, it was a really a joke in our family. Isn't that Under your bathing something? Suit? Because it was so vague. Yeah, because it was so vague. What are they talking about? Because they couldn't say
2: the word penis or vagina or breasts. Or I, I mean, see. It, yeah. Uh-huh. And you see, a kid, a, a child who is very concrete, might take that information and say, "Oh my," they told me in school, nobody should touch my bathing suit.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. So. We aren't. So what we're teaching our children really isn't working. We know that because more and more kids are getting abused. And why don't they say
2: something? Why they don't, I'll, tell, I'll tell you why they don't say anything. First, there's a lot of reasons, but the first reason is because the person who is abusing them is somebody who they have very ambivalent feelings toward. Probably somebody that they do like and have learned to trust. They're kids, and kids are taught to trust adults that adults know better. So they make the assumption, oh, this must be what's supposed to be going on. Maybe it's the norm. If this this person who I love and adore is telling me it's okay, maybe it is okay. Secondly, they're they're very, very confused about what's going on. They're, They're children, after all. And the abusers very frequently threaten the kids. Like if you tell your mother or father, I will kill your family. I've worked with kids for years, and I've heard that they tell me all the time that they didn't come forward because they were threatened. (laughs) Telling telling a child that you're going to kill their family is certainly a deterrent to that child. Telling somebody, and frankly, kids have a lot of kids do tell the adults, but they don't are not believed. The statistics are that kids have to tell seven adults that they're being sexually abused before one of them will believe them. So perhaps the kids are, are speaking out loud, but they're not believed. I mean, what mother really wants to believe that her boyfriend or her new husband is abusing her daughter or her son?
0: So, parents... so you're saying that there's a lot of denial in terms of the parents or the guardians or whoever the caretakers are for the children. They don't yes. want to hear it.
2: And you've it's seen that, too, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. it's too threatening.
2: It's too threatening. And the kids are also full of shame. They're confused. You know, on some level they know something is very wrong with it. But they're very, very confused. It's a very hard thing for kids. And then imagine... Telling a parent that this is happening, and the parents, is, I've, I've seen this, I've seen this in practice, and I've worked, I ran an inpatient unit for a, for a, a long time with, with kids and teenagers. I've seen, I've, I've sat in sessions where kids have told their parents about what happened, and the parents have said, you've always been a liar. And the kids are devastated. Actually, there's one school of thought where people think that's what, what is even more important than, The abuse is how your parents react to it. If your parents believe you and embrace you, you can heal. But if your parents call you a liar, it's even psychologically worse than the abuse itself.
0: And and I want to add another piece. Do you think that, or has this happened in your practice, where where, uh, a child will tell their parents, and then the parents blame the child for being seductive or blaming...
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You've always been promiscuous, you've always been sexual, you've always flirted with him, which is a terrible thing to say. Yes, I, I, I have seen that.
0: I think another thing also is that, that, that these children often, when they are abused, there's a piece of it that feels good, and they're ashamed, right. and they're embarrassed, and then they think it's their fault, because, uh, because it does feel good on some level, and That's it can. Right.
2: That's right. But that's so true. That's part of the whole package of conf- of confused feelings. Because when those are, you know erogenous zones are touched, it does feel good. So they they're confused. They're feeling this. Maybe this is right. Maybe this is wrong. But it does feel good. And they and they feel so shame, ashamed and guilty about telling their parents. You know, he did this to me. And, and and then the, their, their abusers also tell them, you know, you want this. I know you want this. And that coupled with it feeling, maybe feeling good, is just a tough recipe.
0: Where do you, I want to talk about the abuser for a, a moment. Like the, the kinds of people, what is the psychological, what are the dynamics of someone who is an abuser? And can yes. they be helped and can they ever stop abusing, sexually
2: abusing? That's very thing. I was asked that yesterday. <laughs> okay, this is, this is, there are, if you look at the whole pool of sexual offenders, there's a, there's a lot of variety within that group. So there's no one psychological profile of an abuser. But, you know, there, there, there's a subgroup that are sociopaths that simply don't care about the feelings of others. There's a subgroup of most most sex offenders, I should say, are attracted to the opposite sex, and many of them are married and, and do have relationships, but abuse children. Then there's another subgroup that are pedophiles, that are primarily attracted to children. So, this, so there's so many different profiles, Catherine, of, of sex offenders, but... Um, in terms of rehab, I'm very skeptical.
0: So even though they come from, uh, they have a different profile, they may, be, uh, not, they may be a pedophile, they may not be, they may have mm-hmm. sex with adults as well as children, or you say they could be sociopaths, uh, does that, that impact on their ability, on the uh, prognosis for rehabilitation? Do some rehabilitate better
2: than others? No, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. I think it's a really intractable problem, and the rates of recidivism, even after treatment, are very high because it's a very impulsive kind of problem. And I really do think that sexual offenders do need to be monitored very, very carefully. Do, I'm sex, one of the, do sex
0: offenders, um, I mean, I agree with you, I think they do have to be monitored do you think that, the, you know, well, I'm kind of like the nature nurture kind of thing, or were they abused as children necessarily or not?
2: Is the majority that... are. The majority have been. And the majority also have come from very chaotic backgrounds and um, backgrounds of neglect and possibly violence. You see, it's not just being sexually abused. You see, a person who is... This is the directionality. The majority of sex offenders have been sexually abused, but the majority of children who are sexually abused do not go on to become sexual offenders. So it's more than just sex abuse that turns one into a sex offender. So
0: uh, that's, I guess, the step. That well, the second statistic gives us some hope that children who have been abused uh, don't necessarily become abusers.
2: They don't. Uh, the majority do not.
0: The majority do not. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is, and, well, I would assume there'd be a difference between young between boys and girls or men and women.
2: Mm-hmm. The, bo- the boys, the girls are, the majority do not because it's uncommon for women to be sex abusers, but the majority of boys do not become Sexual offenders. I think that's really, really important for people to know, and that's and that's another reason why when they become teens, they become very ashamed of what happened because they're very fearful that they're going to turn into sex offenders. But the majority do not. And when I tell that to teenage boys that I work with, they're very heartened by that information.
0: How does it affect being abused? What's the impact on their ability to be intimate with a woman Mm -hmm. or a man if they're gay? gay, Yeah, yeah. whichever, but to have a good uh, sexual and intimate relationship with a partner, how does that impact on their ability to do that if they've been sexually abused?
2: Well, I think if they get the right support and counseling, they can have a wonderful intimate relationship with a same sex or opposite sex partner, whatever their orientation is. I think though that there has when they start when they're in high school and hormones start surging and people's kids, their peers start to talk about sex out loud and there are opportunities for sex, I think that's when they really start to have difficulty with their emotions and also Find relationships very tricky. That's when all these feelings come to the to the forefront. So I think it's during the teenage years that they probably need to start getting some counseling. Yeah.
0: And, and that wouldn't be surprising, given that during the teenage years, even if one has not been sexually abused, it's always a chaotic time, and the hormones are right. raging, and and this, uh, you know, a lot of confusion and often chaos. But now, Barbara, what kinds of symptoms? Let's say you maybe suspect that someone is abusing your child, and you are there certain symptoms to look for in your son or daughter if you have a suspicion that maybe something is going on?
2: Mm-hmm. As, as it, it's different. So you're talking about when they're children.
0: When they're children.
2: Yes. When they're children, you will start to see avoidance. There are certain situations that they don't want to be in. For example, if they are very upset about going to daycare, then you really want to find out what it is about daycare that's so aversive to them. If they start develop becoming very fearful of adults or adult men, that's another concern that there may be something that has caused that. And you might look for the opposite behavior as well. I remember a little girl who used to play with my daughter, and this girl would climb on any man's lap and start to be flirtatious with them. And I was suspicious that this girl was being sexually abused, and it later turned out that she was. If you see little kids behaving in a sexual manner, well, they probably learn that somewhere. Or somebody is teaching them that, so... If you see kids that are little kids who are acting in what seems to be a, a seductive and flirtatious manner, not flirtatious, sexualized manner, that, that is a very, very strong warning sign. Oh. And so a lot of somatic symptoms, stomach aches, headaches, those, those are often signs that something is very deeply amiss.
0: So as a psychologist, what would you recommend a parent perhaps will recognize these signs and may, um, may come to you as a clinician? And how do you recommend, what, what should they do in terms of approaching their, their, their son or daughter?
2: Well, you see, this is a very interesting thing. Sometimes kids, when I ask them, sometimes when I ask them why they didn't tell their parents, You know, they talk about shame and they talk about fear, but they also say, well, I thought my mother or father knew, because little kids think that parents are so powerful. I think that if parents suspect it and there is one particular situation that the child wants to avoid and is fearful of, parents should sit down, embrace that child, and say, you know, what is it? You don't like daycare. What's what's happening there that you don't like? Kid will probably start crying and then spill spill what's going on in, in, in a warm and loving setting people and kids often let their guard down
0: so in other words one you want to be the nurturing parent and obviously particularly nurturing in that situation and yeah uh, yeah is there any particular age at which kids are, are more vulnerable that predators seem to um go after them you know
2: it's not the age but it's a particular kind of child and i want to kind of make it very clear that i am not getting into any blaming the victim here but there is a certain type of child that's particularly vulnerable is it, am i kind of making myself clear there
0: Yes, I I and I, and the the example that I gave you of, of Lauren book who has written a book about her uh being abused by her nanny, very clearly understood that. She said she was the one, she was the people pleaser, she was the one who wanted to please. She was right out there. Her sister was somebody who and, and and this may be an example. Her sister was somebody who, you know, wouldn't let anybody do that to them. She was very aggressive, she had a very different kind of personality and and this Lauren made the distinction between the two of them. I don't know if that's an example
2: that, that That's exactly, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's it's they sort of it's more than the age what they go, there's not one specific age that's more appealing to another. It's the avail it's the emotional and physical availability of the child. First it's having access to the child, and secondly it's often a child who's lonely and needy who is going to be very re- Sadly, is going, going to be responsive. So somebody who picks them out as a special child and they buy candy and buys candy for them, or buys toys for them, or tells them how beautiful and wonderful they are—it's a, often a lonely and needy child where there is maybe there are not adults really watching very very carefully, and that's not to blame the parents either. But needy kind of lonely kids they know they're prey sort of like predators and prey
0: what of are there other examples of different and we're talking about different personality characteristics not blaming the victim any other personality characteristics um, it, I mean would it relate to a child who's particularly attractive or is particularly mature at a young age or any of those kinds of things I don't think there's any data
2: on that yeah no, I don't think that there's any data on that, on development. I think it's just simply the combination of having access to that child, being with that child, and the child having the right sort of temperament, the, the right sort of personalities for them to sort of go in for the, the kill, so to speak.
0: You've had a lot of experience obviously, in this area. Can you describe and I, we'll have a couple minutes before we go to break, but um maybe the worst case scenario of something that of of a case obviously that 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 you've had that you've had to work with um, um, and then when we come back, we'll talk about what happened to Penn state. Oh, yes, I do sure um Let's take a break now, um, because we've only got a couple minutes, so that we can talk about that after the break, because I do want to get into that. We are of talking this morning with Dr. Barbara Greenberg, Ph.D., psychologist, author of Teenage as a Second Language. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. <laughs> Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network?
1: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zoc Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788.
0: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to the Catherine Zocz show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And joining me this morning has been Dr. Barbara Greenberg, PhD, psychologist, author of Teenage as a Second Language, Parents' Guide to Becoming Bilingual. Um, this morning I've been talking to Barbara as the expert on uh, child sexual abuse, of course, in light of the allegations and all that's been happening with the uh, young boys at Penn State. So, Barbara, before we take, took the break, uh, and we're going to get into that, but I asked you the question, like, worst-case scenario in terms of cases that you've had that you've had to deal with. I wanted you to talk to me and, or talk to us about that.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I, 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 two cases came to mind. I, I, I There's one that I know of that I think would be a wonderful illustration, or I could give you one that I've worked with. I prefer to give you one that I that I that I know of because I think it's so illustrative. If, that, if that's okay with that's you, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, here was a mother who married to her husband had a daughter, biological child of both of them. Mother found blood in the in the baby girl's diaper she then confronted her husband and he admitted crying he admitted that he had sexually abused the child i don't even know what he inserted i kind of don't want to know but um the, so he he promised the mother that he would never do it again the mother believed him a few years later the, ch- the child was a toddler mother was suspicious that something was amiss once again she confronts her husband again he said yes i did it again i'm so sorry mother went then went to see the pastor of her church pastor told her don't tell anybody about this just meet your husband's needs and have sex with him whenever he wants keep him satisfied she did that the child then continued to, the mother did not know this, she said, and I'm sure she was in denial, kid continued to be sexually abused until she was 15. The child didn't come forward and tell her mother because she said she was terrified that her parents would get divorced. She found the idea of her parents getting divorced more aversive than her being raped. And what happened is when the child child eventually moved out of the house at around 18. At 24, this young woman pressed charges, and this man, you know, is now in jail for, for, I think, 15 years. Now, in hindsight, this mother is really devastated that she didn't do anything, but this case just illustrates how people can really be in denial and how once people get invested in marriages, they're really reluctant to give them up, even sometimes at the great expense and well-being of their children. What are are your thoughts about that case?
0: Well, as you're describing the case, I'm trying to think about the mother mother and what, what was going through her mind. I know in some cases... Um, many women who are in certain financial or economic circumstances right. don't feel that if they say something and they their husbands either go to jail or they get divorced, they're not going to be able to take care of themselves or their children, so they right. stay with those kinds of men. I don't know
2: if that was the case in this particular... Situation. Oh, I, my, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I would venture to guess that is the case because that that's the case when women who are being abused by men don't leave it's not everybody says well why didn't they leave they should have left it's not so easy to leave
0: and the question becomes where am I going to go just That's where right. am I those no, you know I may not have no skills uh, right. it, you That's know
2: it's better yeah, I, I, I agree. agree it's very tough it's, it's not so easy and, and I think that you know it probably was partly financially related. That would be my guess, and I think you you said it, and I think it's very fair. And um, the and yes, in this case, this is probably going to be your next question. We um, she was abused this mother as a child. You were so going to ask is something me that. that she knew
0: <laughs> this is something she's familiar with. This is the way she's always lived her life, and I think that one thing you know, human nature. Being the way it is, people tend to stick with what they know, even if it is, even if it doesn't work, even if it's horrific, like in this case. But you know, it, you know that, that, that I think there's a saying, isn't there? I mean, that you, it, it, it's mm-hmm. what you know is better than what you don't know. So you, you, you know, making a change is something that often, uh, women, and particularly women in these kinds of situations, they don't do anything about it. And that's
2: right, yeah. because you know the old the saying, "Familiarity breeds contempt," is not right. Familiarity does not breed contempt.
0: No, it doesn't. I, I think the people are afraid to, to, to uh, they stick to the status quo, That's no right. matter people what it is. stick
2: to the status quo. Yeah. And right, you know, maybe she thought she was going to be homeless, or she was scared to death to be alone. I mean, there's a lot at stake. We invest a lot in our relationships. Were there any siblings in this case? or No, only child.
0: Only child. And sometimes that can make a difference if you have a sibling who may be aware of what's happening and may encourage you to say something, too, or do something.
2: Yes, having a sibling, especially once you become verbal. If you have a sibling who suspects something is going on, I've seen that a lot, too. I'm so happy you brought that up. A sibling will also will we'll will sometimes bring it to a parent's attention or be supportive to that to that other kid. Yes, that may have been a factor as well, yeah. because that she
0: everyone was kind of uh, as you're describing the family, I'm thinking of these kind of isolated figures. you know, there wasn't a lot of support for the mother or a lot of support for the daughter. Um in the case that I keep mentioning to you, this young girl who was um, abused by her nanny. Uh, she actually, when she became, um, well, I don't know, 14 or 15, and she was in high school, she met a young man who fortunately was quite mature. She told him, and he was the one who said to her, and we're talking about get, at least having some support, someone to you can confide in, he said, you need to tell your father, because if you don't, I will.
2: Oh, that, that's a, now that's a good friend.
0: That's a good friend and a good boyfriend.
2: Uh, and she yeah. did, and then, you know. Did the
0: father believe her? Yes, the father did. The father, the mother was bipolar, Mm -hmm. so this is another piece of the whole.
2: Was she treated or not treated? She, you
0: know, she was treated. She was in and out of rehab. She was in, or she was in and out of therapy. The house was chaotic. They always had a lot of nannies. The father was a very successful attorney and lobbyist, so he wasn't. Even though she, this young woman, was close to him, he wasn't physically there. He was always away on business so he sort of left you know the house with the nannies and this mother who was incompetent yeah. and uh, wasn't physically there so but he right. did believe her yeah
2: so he wasn't available
0: he wasn't available
2: so she really she, she that that young man who encouraged her to go to the father really was a wonderful person yeah yeah and um
0: I think you do need somebody, as you say, you, you need some kind of support. I mean, you mentioned that these kids, they have to tell seven who and how, seven adults before somebody will believe them. That's right. And how many of them are going to tell
2: seven adults? That's right. That's, that's an excellent point. How many of them are going to go from one to another to another? But that that's how it happens. Do you remember um, about two weeks ago, there was an 18-year-old girl who went, went on what was called a Twitter rant, it was an 18 year old girl i think her name was ashlyn this was in the news she was being uh she reported being sexually sexually abused and she actually went to child protective services but they closed the case and they thought she was you know told her she was a liar she um uh then tweeted out to 500 of her followers, some of whom I, I would hope were her friends, that she was being sexually abused and she was very upset and depressed. Nobody responded. Nobody helped her. She then committed suicide. So this one tweeted, she went, not only did she go to the correct agency, but she also went on this Twitter rant where she tried to get the message out to 500 people And nobody did anything. Reached out to help her.
0: Well, that brings up a whole other question. What? Where are we as a society? I mean, when you have the, you know, I thought it was going to be. I didn't hear about it. I thought it was going to be a good ending, and that you know, here you can use social media for a positive outcome. Five hundred people don't respond. What's wrong with us?
2: Well, I think you know that it 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 takes us back to. We have to go to social psychology principles to find the answer here this is the same kind of thing. Why, why do we stand by while people are bullied? Why, do we, why last week was a man beaten up on a subway train in New York City and people stood by and videoed it and laughed and, and cheered? Why do we as a society act like that? I think there's this, something called a bystander effect where people feel this sort of what happens is this sort of diffusion of responsibility. People assume that, and so many people may know, somebody else will take responsibility. And the other thing is, and this is so ironic, people believe that if nobody is, that the social, if nobody else is doing anything, then that's probably the socially appropriate thing to do. So a lack of action is then considered to be socially acceptable. So I think that's where we need to re-educate our kids. And all of us, that the socially acceptable thing to do is to take care of one another, not to assume that other people are going to do it. If we all assume somebody else is calling the police, then nobody will call.
0: Do you think, Barbara, that this was the case or this had, this had some kind of effect on what happened at Penn State, that this bystander effect, that that, that was part of it?
2: Yes. Yes. I really, really do. There were people who knew about it. We know that, right? Right. And, I, you know, I think part of it is that, uh, that you can you know, think there's a lot invested in college football and nobody wanted to shake things up. However, I do think that enough people knew that people were probably saying, well, let let the other one take care of it. Let him do something about it. Let the, you know, we already notified, I guess, the president of the school, whoever it was, I'm not sure. And that person didn't do anything about it. So I do think, yes, the bystander effect was going on there. Absolutely.
0: And it seems to, well, you mentioned two things, but that, you know, football is big money. A lot of people have a lot of stake and in all in, in, in it, right. particularly at Penn State. I mean, it's a huge, huge, you know, big team and big money. And, and uh, but now as this since this came out, it seems that there's kind of a snowball effect. We now had a, a similar situation at the Syracuse University here incredible, in New York. incredible, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. You know,
2: it's almost analogous to the mother who has so much invested in the marriage so she doesn't want to shake things up. Same thing with, the, with football. People don't want things to be shaken up, so they let things continue.
0: So let's talk about the message from all of this, because I think it's really important. I think it's important that you and I talk about it. You're a psychologist. I'm a social worker. We want to make people feel comfortable about bringing up the topic. We don't want people to feel ashamed. I mean, this is difficult stuff for people. Mm -hmm. We're trained in it. That's different. So I think that when you have shows like this, and when you go on shows, I know you were on Anderson Cooper, uh, it's really important. To, to get this out in the media, so that this kind of stuff won't continue to happen or uh, to a lesser degree, yep
2: you know it's it's interesting because I think that we have really failed one another in terms of even the anti bullying movement, which is kind of connected to this. I think we have really failed in our efforts to teach. Our kids how to act. We, we teach our kids, don't do this, don't do that, don't say anything mean, don't say anything not nice, don't say anything that you wouldn't want anybody else to say to you, but we don't teach them what to do, right? We teach them that they themselves shouldn't be bullies and get into trouble, but we don't teach them that you are accountable for one another, Friends are supposed to take care of each other. I know that in some countries, if there's a motor vehicle accident and you don't stop and help, that that's a crime. I feel like we should bring that here, that people who know of something happening and don't uh, seek help and don't bring it to the attention of somebody else, they are playing a significant role in that event also. And I know that sounds very harsh, and I know that it, it, there will be a lot of controversy around that, but, but that's how I feel, that we need to be account, held accountable for one another.
0: I think different states have different laws regarding yeah. that, the statutes, and I know that I think in Florida and uh, they've changed that so that there's a 48-hour or 7-8-hour, whatever it is, um, window where if you are aware of that, Let's say someone is sexually abusing a child, or you have to say something, or you are culpable. That's for culpable. professionals.
2: That's for professionals,
0: right? I Well, maybe it is for professionals. That's not for yeah. the layperson you're saying. You're right. saying that it should be a layperson. Just anybody should have to... That's right. That's something. right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. For
2: professionals we have to report it. Yeah. it within 24 or 48 hours. But I think that it should be a greater message that we as citizens are responsible for one another.
0: Yeah. I, and are there any? Are there any states? Are there any statutes where that's the case? Do, do you know of any?
2: You know, I don't know of any statutes. I do know that I gave <laughs> a, a talk at a, at a high school last night and. That high school is trying to implement that, that if you know of a bullying incident or of an incident where something is happening to a peer and you don't report it, then you face consequences. And I thought that was very interesting. And they're just putting that into effect now. So we'll see how that pans out over time.
0: Do you think, and you're right, the bullying is related to, I think, very closely to all of this, what we've been talking about in sexual abuse. Is there more bullying today, or are there just more people, or are we just more aware of it?
2: Well, a couple of things, I think there is more because we have the social media and the electronic technology. I mean, I remember, you know, one girl who used to follow me home from school pulling my hair. Well, well I remember her very well, but <laughs> once, once I got into my house, she she couldn't. She didn't have access to me anymore. Now I assume she'd be posting all kinds of Facebook pictures about me, and and the bullying never ends now, you see. You're not safe in your own house.
0: Because that's really. That, I think that's a really good point because it's that con, you're constantly barraged with it. And I can give an example too. When I was a kid, I think six years old. When you used, to, and I was seven years old, and I was able to ride my bike on the street, yeah, go out with my friends. Fun. It was fun, but there was one kid, and I was always afraid. I had this period where I was afraid of. Thunderstorms. There's going to be a thunder and lightning. There was one kid who I played with who knew that. So he would always tease me. There's going to you be a beautiful day. There's going to be a thunderstorm, Kathy. Aww. And I, so I'd run in the house to my mother, and I would be terrible. I didn't want to go out. But I, and she always says, I knew you had a really good feelings of self-esteem because you used to come through the door and say, what's wrong with him that he keeps doing this to me? Not what's wrong with me, but what's wrong with him? Mm-hmm. And she was a social worker as well. Uh. <laughs> Uh... But yeah, but I think that point that you just made, and and is I think that what we should be aware of that that it that it is constant. It's not just someone teasing you in the playground, and then that's the end of it when you go home, or it's the end of it when you're on the bus. But everybody's there with their iPhones, their even the kids, their iPads, their you know. So it's it's just twenty four hours. It's constant. It's twenty four hours, a- right?
2: Yeah. And I always tell parents. Parents are afraid to kind of set limits or set parameters around their kids' use of electronic technology. And I always tell them that that's a must. They have to limit their children's use of their laptop and cell phones and charge them in another room. See, that also is part of what goes into sexual abuse, because a lot of sexual abusers find the kids online. They go into chat rooms. This, this, they become friends with them. They arrange to meet them. I've, I've worked with cases like that where men have arranged to meet fifteen-year-old girls at the mall, and the parents drive them to the mall and drop them off, thinking that they're meeting a friend, and then they're horrified by by what happens. So I think it's it's different and it's a lot harder and more complicated now because of the electronic technology. I mean, I remember when I would be on the phone. And if I was on the phone too long, my mother would pick up the other phone and say, Barbara, it's time, it's to, time to get on to get get off the off. phone now. Yeah, and I'd be humiliated. You know, my mother was on the phone. But certainly we wouldn't be engaging in sexual conversations. My mother could pick up the phone at any time. And now on the computer, it, because people, kids and adults, feel anonymous, things get sexual very quickly. Well,
0: this may be my last question because I think it's an important one. So tell us, what, do you, what is, how much should parents be uh, supervising their children? I mean, children need a sense of autonomy. They need a sense that someone's not always looking over their That's back right. and being invaded. I mean, they have to have some sense of privacy. What is the balance for that? Yeah. How much should parents be on the computer or, you
2: know, i really like to hear your take uh, on that. It, it, it's a really lovely and important question. I think balance is important. I think before you hand your child any piece of electronic technology, you've got to let them know that you will be periodically checking in, randomly monitoring, not hovering and being on there, checking their Facebook every day and their text messages every day, but random check-ins. And let them know that from the outset, so it doesn't come as a surprise. I mean, you wouldn't hand your kid a loaded gun, right, and say, go to it. <laughs> you know? No, you
0: wouldn't. But I think what you're saying is so that you're not spying on them. You're telling That's them right. what you're going to do. That's
2: right. You're being up front. So it's not like you're sneaking around. And it doesn't feel intrusive. It may feel intrusive anyway, but at least you're telling the child up front. So maybe that they will... Also, that will affect their behavior on electronic technology if they know that you're checking in. And it may also come as a relief to them. They won't tell you that, but sometimes they get mired in these difficult situations that they don't know how to get out of.
0: At what point do you stop doing that when
2: they go to college? Yeah. I think so. I think you have to when they go to college, unless there's a, re- a reason for great concern. I mean, yes, I think through high school you should be monitoring. And they may say things like, "Ah, oh, you don't trust me. Well, you know, the fact is you really can't trust electronic technology. So I wouldn't suggest saying to the child, no, I'd be really naive to trust you, but instead to say, you know, this is all very complicated. So, I, you know, I feel like in my role as a parent, I've, I've got to, I've got to monitor.
0: I think another thing one can say. I think I used to say this sometimes to my boys when it was related to driving a car. It's not that I don't trust you, but I don't trust the other person. That's right. So, uh, you know, I don't know what's happening on the other end of the computer, and that's it, right. Yeah. So you can get yourself into situations that you don't know how to handle. It's not that I don't trust you perfect, yeah.
2: That's a perfect way to address it.
0: Yeah, As you said, I think it's very tough. It's very complex. What can we leave our listeners with in terms of how we want to empower the parents and we want to empower the kids? Mm -hmm. I think the takeaway message
2: is be very mindful of what your kids are up to. They're still children. And When they become teenagers, we don't, it it is not a time to stop paying attention. Simply because they speak less, it's not a time to stop watching and observing and tuning in. I think that's a lot of, a mistake a lot of parents make, and these are well-intentioned, wonderful parents. But I think it is, it is not a time to kind of start focusing elsewhere. They really need to be watched. Not don't hover, but watch what they're doing on the computer. Get to know who their friends are. Get to know if they're going on sleepovers, what it's like at the house where they're sleeping over, who is in the family, who the siblings are and the parents are of their friends. Get to Go to their games so you can see who their coaches are get to know the people that they are spending a lot of time with. And this all takes a lot of effort, but it's your job as a parent to keep your kids safe above all else.
0: Uh, great advice, and I think the uh, two things, as you said, you have to be there. You have to be there. You have to go to the game. You have to see who's there. You have to go to the mall. You have to see who's there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, and it does. It takes a lot of time. It also takes a lot of energy. And it also, is the time we can, this brings you. Uh, actually, we can just wind up with your book because when they become teenagers, you have to do all this. You want to be more engaged, and it's a period when they want to be less engaged. So. If you read Teenage as a Second Language, A Parent's Guide to Becoming Bilingual, you'll learn how to be able to continue the engagement with your suddenly, often sarcastic, sullen adolescent. But, um, Barbara, it's been great talking to you today. Oh, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Barbara Greenberg, Ph.D., psychologist, author. And we can find you online. Mention the website, talkingteenage.com.
2: Talkingteenage.com. And if you're looking for the book, you can click right on a picture of the book on the website. And it'll, it's a fun book to read. It's not a heavy duty, serious book. It'll give you some laughs,
0: too. It, yeah, and it's very practical. Yes. I, I like practical.
2: And stick it in your pocketbook and use it as a little bit of a dictionary. <laughs>
0: exactly.
2: Thank you so much. Lovely talking to you. Have a wonderful day. Great. Thank you. Barbara Greenberg, Ph.D. Teen
0: Doctor for Psychology Today. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And I want to mention again, listen to us live. You can listen to us live every Wednesday from 10 to 11, but we also archive the show, and you can download it and listen to it as a podcast. Uh, And the same goes for my show on Thursdays, which was 9 to 10 uh, WCDB 90.9 FM in Albany New York and that also is live and uh, we archived it's called The Social Workers and um, it is archived for about 16 weeks and you can download that and it will also you can use it as a podcast so I'm Katherine Zox and I hope you had a good morning as I did uh, have a great week and we'll see you next Wednesday